All right. Welcome to Window Gazing Podcast, the podcast where two TikTokers try to stay on the same subject for the amount of time that we are recording. Uh, and sometimes today, do it successfully. Sometimes. That's right. Today we have on a special guest, Lincoln, who knows a lot about 15-minute cities and walkability. Uh, Lincoln is my counterpart here in Portland. We have met up for coffee and I just think he is delightful and so knowledgeable. And um, yeah, today we want to talk about city walkability. Thank you for the introduction. I'm super excited to be here. Um, and I'll also try to stay on topic as well. Um, so hopefully I, I don't work against that. Um, you tried to get to read me, you tried to get me to read a book called, um, was it called Walkable Cities? Yes, by Jeff yes. Spence. Yeah. And I read about half of it. And so maybe you can tell me about like what I missed. The, <laughs> the thing that I think about um, with Walkable Cities is just basically like, um, conspiracy theorists who think 15 minute cities are a ploy to make them get rid of their cars. And I think that's where people's understanding begins and ends with 15 minute cities. They're just kind of parroting things that they're told. And with Jeff Speck's book, Walkable City, it was kind of, I think of that book as kind of the, the grand entrance, kind of the thing that started the conversation around walkable cities. And he released a 10th anniversary edition which really expands on it but I think that the problem I find when I try to talk to people about walkable cities is that it's deeply boring like <laughs> <laughs> like when you because I'm sure you probably found that reading his book like you're reading about parking and the size of I actually okay I like, love parking though the first time we had coffee I was like have you heard of Doug Shoup and you were like, yes, I have. And we we're like <laughs> talking about parking and the eminent like um, person who studies parking. Is that his name, Doug Shoup? Yes. Yeah. yeah. He kind of was the first person to popularize it. And I'm so happy I'm not alone in that. But I think <laughs> when we're talking about 15 minute cities, it's the challenge of it is trying to reimagine the world because I've only ever lived in one certain type of world. I, I've never stepped outside and see have seen a coffee shop right across the street and a doctor's office on the same block i've never experienced that so it's really hard for me personally to even see what that's like and if mm -hmm. someone is just living their life day to day and they hear that you'd have to give up your car they just immediately think of the inconvenience um, and the change that, that would cause so i think in that there's a lot of fear that people have just around a simple a, a big change in their environment but it's really hard to imagine the other side of that what's toronto like in that way um other sir in Canada? yeah it's it, this is really interesting to me because i feel like this question of walkable cities has been a thing in the toronto zeitgeist for two decades like it's not a new thing for us and i think it's because it's sort of like been so just to give like a quick Toronto history lesson, like in the in the late 1990s, uh, the province basically forced the city, which was a basically kind of like five boroughs to amalgamate. And so created this big mega city. And the issue with Toronto is you have 
uh, I don't know how well you know the city, but you have this downtown core that's very like dense, grid-like, and very much very walkable, right? Series of neighborhoods. Um, you're within walking distance of your school, your grocery store, your bar, whatever. Um, so, and, you know, touches all those things. But the exurbs, so, uh, you know, Etobicoke and I guess Scarborough and North York are traditional sort of post-war suburbs. Um, so built on that model where you have these enormous tracts of residential spaces, uh, strip malls, um, and then, you know, interconnected with highways, right? So the mega city kind of like forced these two uh oppositional forces together and kind of gave the exurbs a majority in city council and so suddenly downtown toronto felt itself embattled by a bunch of people who were uh you know pushing back against anything that would sort of exp expand the idea of a walkable city to the outer burbs right even though we know all the good things that happen with that right and it's it's i'm sure we'll talk about this later but it's so important and to me, like the idea of walkable cities is so closely connected with housing affordability, because what happened in Toronto is you had this uh, disconnect between the houses in the downtown core, which were highly sought after because they were in these walkable, vibrant neighborhoods. And there was a mismatch between the housing that was in the outer burbs, which was not desirable because it was it just meant, you know, being isolated, being forced to use a car, hugely long commutes to get to the downtown where most of the office spaces were. Um, and because of that, mis that mishmash in, uh, in part led to the, you know, growth of the housing crisis, which we covered in a, another another podcast, I think. So so I feel like it's really interesting to see the rest of the world, you know, th this is a very typical Torontonian attitude, but it's nice to see the rest of the world get into this issue because it's been literally talked about ad nauseum in Toronto politics for like a good two decades. Well, you built you built your life around the idea of not having to deal with cars. You never got a driver's license. Yeah. Wasn't that <laughs> yeah. partly about living in Toronto and not having to? Yeah. And that's not a unique experience for Toronto. It, there's people in Montreal, which is also an extremely walkable city who are also in that same boat. And also when I, you know, I have New Yorker friends who are like that, um, you know, even if they don't live in Manhattan necessarily, but they live in, you know, parts of Brooklyn or, or even the Bronx, like they're, you know, having a car is just a huge expense and it's a tough enough city to drive around in anyway. And most of your amenities are, again, within 50 minute walking distance of your house. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's the experience for a lot of people who live in these sort of older, denser, gridded cities. It's funny to hear that walkable cities is something that Portland or that Toronto has talked about for a long time because in Portland it kind of the conversation started in the 70s um there was this plan brown you do know um about the freeway that was removed on the side of the river we tore down a river because we were building a freeway and there was this huge plan it was voted and approved on by city council to close off most of downtown to cars create a lot of affordable housing units something like really progressive even today and it just never panned out like it just kind of fizzled and again over the decades there's always been this push for walkable cities but there's always been something that's kept it from happening and it's really frustrating to see all of those movements gain so much momentum and so much public support i'm sure in toronto there's much more public support for things like that than a lot of people realize. 
Well, one thing I didn't even think of until you said that is Toronto was also the home for Jane Jacobs, and she was a huge force in pushing back against um, this idea of the Spadina Expressway, which is they were going to build a literal giant expressway that was going to cut straight through the downtown, and she led a very strong grassroots opposition to to uh, stop that from happening, which worked. So this idea that like pushing for walkable cities is a relatively new phenomenon is, I feel like it's just like, you know, we we memory hold everything because of the internet. Um, uh, and I think because we've moved away as, and we can talk about this later, like from the concept of a walkable city to a 15 minute city, which is just sort of seems, seems to me like a novel take on an older concept. Uh, and all the sort of attendant conspiracy theories, you've kind of forgotten that this is a thing that we've been wanting to have in cities for a long, long time. Yeah, and that we had like for a long well. Who's Who made up 15-Minute City? I believe it came from Oxford in England. It was kind of oh. their, they had like an infographic and that's what started this whole, they had a circle that divided up basically quadrants and like, you can just stay in this quadrant and you don't have to, um, I'm not too familiar with the plan, but I think where a lot of people were worried about like, oh, I can't take my car from this district, this district to this district was because of congestion pricing, which mm -hmm. is basically being charged for driving your car in an area. Um, but I think we should talk about what a walkable city or what a 15 minute city is, because we we haven't even. <laughs> yeah. so walkable city is... What is a walkable city? This is something that I think a lot of people don't realize when when I'm talking about a 15 minute city I don't want to live in a high rise I don't want to live in a 50 story building I like to talk about gentle density and northwest Portland is a great example of it there are still homes there are townhomes and there are apartment buildings there are grocery stores and businesses but nothing feels overwhelming everything is gentle you're not being overwhelmed by skyscrapers there are parks that you can walk through so when we talk about 15-minute cities, we're not wanting to put people into a downtown area. That, that's not the vision. It's to put you in a neighborhood where there's a mix of different types of housings and buildings. There are warehouses for businesses and office space. It's just kind of everything a little closer together, but not to the point where you're overwhelmed and overstimulated just by existing in that space like you would be in a downtown Northwest Portland is a really pleasant place to be, as opposed to downtown Portland or the Pearl District. Once you start to have high rises, there's almost less, uh, it's almost, there's more building facades, there's more um, just like walking in the sun with no foliage around you. It's very, um, it's a very different experience. My question is, is there enough like, can you build your whole city like that and have enough housing for people? Well, I think you would have to reform a lot of real estate law and take away some of the power from landlords because when the Pearl District was being developed, we just let high-end luxury developers come in and develop that land. And so like, if we're gonna to continue to let developers build certain types of housing, however they want, like we're gonna keep ending up with the same outcome. And that's a similar problem in downtown Portland. Like they're just luxury apartments like with the Ritz-Carlton coming in. That's just mm -hmm. increasing the pricing of housing. So this conversation has to happen in tandem with reforming and balancing powers within an economic system, because what can happen or what 
happened now, like you said, in Toronto, walkability equals expense. To live in a walkable area, you have to spend infinitely more money than in the suburbs. And we have to decouple those. Or what's funny, what's funny is in Portland, that doesn't feel true. And I don't know if this is some Goldilocks period of time that doesn't normally exist, but like there's a reshifting happening. But when I was looking at apartment prices around 2020, so the pandemic had already started and I was moving Northwest had some of the most affordable apartments. They were historic apartments. They were all built in like 1905. They all had clawfoot bathtubs and brick buildings and they were so beautiful. And they were about priced the same as Northeast or downtown. Um, But in some cases you could find cheaper specifically in that area. And I was like, this is such an amazing part of town. Why is it so cheap? And see, that's where we need to start now because a lot of reasons that northwest is more affordable is because it just has older buildings jane jacob talks about it in her book is if you build a building today it's just going to cost more like infinitely more than even converting an old building into housing and what happened in northwest it was developed in that gentle density way whereas other areas of the city aren't being they're just we're having these brand new luxury apartments which are really expensive to build and we have out-of-state developers building them that are able to charge exorbitant rents. And that creates the issue with walkability. So if we, I'm not sure what the solution is to that, but I think identifying older buildings where we can somehow refashion their use into some type of mixed housing development, um, that would kind of abate some of that price inflation. And then you kind of end up at this question of like, do you have to, is the government going to have to force everybody to work in the same direction? Because it seems like you always end up with the same result if you just let the developers and all like all the incentives go in the way that sort of rugged individuality wants to take a company. I was listening to a fascinating podcast episode yesterday about airline travel and the man who invented like the way that we do airline travel today which is like we're going to charge you for every damn thing the only thing that you get with your airline ticket is you will arrive at your destination (laughs) um and they were talking about the man who invented that and at the time that he came out of harvard the view of airline travel was the government needs to regulate this because if we don't the airlines are going to be at a race to the bottom to offer the cheapest thing to have no quality. And they're like, we don't want air travel to work like that. It sounds dangerous. Um, And it almost feels like we need that same thinking of like the government needs to come in and like, hey, if we let everybody do what they naturally are going to end up in, in the market, um, we're going to end up with these crazy high rises that don't make any sense that are like really. um, It's just for profit. That's real. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. Well, and. It's funny because like, I feel like in America, it, we're slowly shifting away from this conversation, but people running these companies, we all go to the bathroom the same, you know, like they aren't like particularly special. Um, they just have access to certain resources and viewing the government as something that can't step in and protect the community is, I think, really harmful um, because people make mistakes too, like just honest mistakes, but just allowing individual companies to run ride shot over a community. I mean, you see it in Portland, especially with the housing crisis and the unhoused population. Like it is really 
like we cannot keep letting things happen the way that they're happening here. I'm not sure what it's like in Nova Scotia or Toronto. Um, what is a housing crisis? How is it being felt in your area? It started here, you know, because we, I said this on another podcast in that we, we didn't have the great housing crash of 2008. And so if you look at, you know, housing values in Toronto, for example, it's basically a straight line up uh, from the late nineties up until today to the point where the median, median price for a house in Toronto is over a million dollars. And there's, you know, there's a great cottage industry of people on TikTok comparing what you can get in Toronto versus what you can get you know, literally I did one for housing, housing in Los Angeles. And then someone who's a mutual friend of ours has started comparing the price of Toronto housing to castles in Europe. So, oh so it's very much out of hand yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> and so all of the things that you're talking about, I feel are universal, probably mostly to North America, I'm sure parts of Europe as well, but, but yeah, this exact issue of, um, you know, Toronto basically went all in starting from the 1930s on single family dwellings, right? Single family units. And so the entire downtown core, although it's much more walkable than the, you know, suburbs, um, it's all just single family housing, row right. after row after row. And so there's deep opposition. Um, and kind of, and, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to call everyone a NIMBY and dismiss their views, but there, it does kind of make sense if you think of the character of downtown Toronto, which is like very, it's like, you know, it's like a city within a park and it's all these lovely sort of row yeah. houses surrounded by, you know, grocery stores and schools. And I think people are nervous and we just like city council literally just this past six months passed an ordinance allowing for this sort of exactly what you're talking about, this soft density middle of middle tier housing. And so that's now going to be legally zoned throughout the city, which is definitely a plus because the housing crisis is so extreme there. But there's still this sense of like, um, and this is what I want to ask you about. What do you do about the many North American cities where it's not just about uh, zoning? It's literally there was a point, you know, either in the 30s or maybe post-war where people were like, this is how we're going to build the city. It's going to be tracks and tracks and tracks of snaking suburban streets, cul-de-sacs, but it's all residential housing tied together with very, very large highways. Um and in between them, these sort of commercial zones, kind of like you see on like city skylines or something where it's just these enormously large commercial malls and restaurants and theaters, and that's it. And to me, it's like the infrastructure is so tied, you know, it's so- uh, right, How do you unravel it? How do you change that? You know what I mean? Like I have some of my own ideas, but I've, I've never seen, I've never seen like a realistic plan to like transform yeah. like a 1950s post-war suburb into a walkable city. Well, and I, I really like your question because it gets to the point that urbanists and 15-minute city enthusiasts aren't talking about, and that's why the cities develop the way they are. Um, I don't know in Canada specifically, but in America, it was because of deep racism. Like, there were explicit government policies that built the suburbs the way they did, and deep with, I grew up in the suburbs. Uh, it was like a 30-minute drive to most things that I needed. And I can definitely say that there is this sentiment of fear in the suburbs of cities. The isolation creates this fear of the other that has existed for a long time, especially with white people. Um, but it's exacerbated, exacerbated by the suburbs. So I don't think that we can come about this conversation from a zoning perspective. It, it's it's a social issue. It's a human issue. And the reason that these people are behaving 
they're clinging so tightly to the suburbs is because of that fear whatever they're saying it's of other people of noise whatever there's a fear that's not being addressed and i think if we can speak to the fear of just being around people i mean there's a lot of social anxiety i have it too from the pandemic especially and i think if we can the solutions exist and i'm not an expert on the solutions per se you can take parking lots and build very easily housing on them through infill development um, but we're not going to get anywhere if we keep talking about that, because that's not that's not the issue, I, I, at least in my mind. Um, the issue is that we don't want to be near people. Yeah. <laughs> and that our cities reflect that. I mean, how often are both of you walking around your cities and you just feel lonely? Like, I feel that's the, the only way I would describe walking through much of Portland is just lonely. Like, yeah. no one on the street. It's just lonely. See, I feel like I've had the best of both worlds because I lived in Etobicoke, which is like a, a suburb of Toronto, and I lived there for 10 years. And it's funny you mentioned the the, the lonely feeling because I felt more frightened walking alone in the streets of Etobicoke. This is like very sort of typical 1950s style suburb in Toronto than I ever felt in the downtown because there was always a sense that there was someone there who would see something bad happen to you. And, you know, if they weren't going to help you, they would at least call the police. Whereas there were times in Etobicoke I would walk around and I I had the feeling that someone could literally slow down their car, shoot me and drive away and no one would know for at least an hour, you know? So, so, um, so yeah, I kind of agree from a safety perspective. I don't think the suburbs address that. I think the issue to me is when I look at, you know, you look at those aerial maps of these suburbs, it's like, and you think about walkability and, and to me, it's like, that's the impossible question. Where do you wedge in? Uh, a main street in these massive, massive uh, swaths of of, uh, of urban sprawl, right? Which is just residential sprawl, more or less. Like, where do you wedge in the sort of, yeah, the corner stores, the schools, they're just not physically there. And I feel like people won't embrace a walkable city if they are live in a neighborhood where it looks like it's physically impossible for that reality to exist. You know what I mean? I think the fastest way, like something that we could see with results within like, six months to a year is if if like you were a homeowner in the suburbs and you were allowed to open like a coffee shop and do business from your home and right. that, that would be one of the easiest ways to just kind of create some more activity within the community and then also just um splitting homes up like if the home is big enough especially a mcmansion uh, just like create it into a fourplex um just create more density because you're right it's untangling this massive these vast plots of land that have so many resources like we can't just demolish them that would be extremely wasteful and they are still useful but i'm curious if there won't just be a trend towards less car ownership for the reason of overall expense so you have like two different patterns you have one pattern that i've seen a lot when i lived in uh, San Jose, which is um, a big city outside San Francisco, big metro area. A lot of people would live in Sacramento and com commute into uh, San Francisco. So they would go further and further out to, to be able to buy a house, but then drive everywhere. And then you have sort of the opposite trend, which is what I am kind of taking part in, which is I got rid of my car. So I cannot live in the suburbs. I can't live there. I can't get to anything that I need. So I have to live in an area that has very, very good 
transportation and I'm wondering public transportation. So I take the bus everywhere. I'm wondering if we don't just abandon the suburbs and all move in closer to where the amenities that we need are and let whoever is running those dumbly uh, laid out, I can't think of a better word, but just like badly planned, badly laid out suburbs, just abandon them and let them go bankrupt. Well, in, in some senses, that's already happening, right? Because of the slow decline of like brick and mortar malls, like in, you know, there's like the, the dead mall is like another sort of favorite topic of, of, of online. You know, it's like, you want to get views on TikToks, so, you know, just show a slideshow of like dead malls from across America or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I think that's happening to some extent. But, you know, for every dead mall, there's a new Walmart or there's a new, you know, Home Depot or there's a new giant box store like a Costco or something uh, to replace that. And to me, this is like the big like where I live right now. Right. Um, you know, to me, that infrastructure, again, it's like once you I think to me, the the biggest issue with with walkability and walkable cities is like uh because that infrastructure we it's so universal right and what i mean by this is like you know the typical suburban main street that's sort of like a hybrid highway and right. on either side you'll see there'll be strip malls there'll be giant mcdonald's and and wendy's or whatever and then there'll, there'll probably be a home depot there and a car dealership and on the sort of further outskirts of that main it's not even a main street because it's like it's not you know, it's not, you don't think of the main street in the old sort of small American towns. It's the big, ugly, disgusting thoroughfare that's usually on the outside of the city. But on the far edges of that, that's where the people live. And they live in these very isolated communities that often like here in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, they don't have any sidewalks because why would you ever walk in your neighborhood? You know what I mean? So there's huge neighborhoods here where I can just walk through and there's literally not a single sidewalk. I'm forced to walk on the road because they didn't expect anyone to actually want to walk when they built this place, right? And so it's like, there's, those places are everywhere in North America. And to me, it's like, even before we get into countering, as you mentioned, Lincoln, like the fear of people yeah. that they have of like something like a, a downtown, even before you address those fears, you, you, we already have this, like, we've already basically created this monster that we're going to, I feel like we're going to spend decades trying to figure out what to do with, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's going to take a lot of work to untangle. And I think you mentioned like this huge sprawling ugly mess and I think that's where the potential lies is that there's space um you know you haven't the place the city I grew up in had a six-lane highway I mean it was a city of 40,000 people you know they they did not need that big of a highway and so I think that it works in tandem if you are able to say on top of a Walmart build housing I, I don't know how that would work but in my mind you just put housing on top of a Walmart or a Target, um, even on top of fire stations and police stations, like mm -hmm. build housing, build up wherever you can. And then that would make it really easy to justify closing a lane or two for public transportation for a streetcar. And I think where I feel a lot of frustration in America and North America is it's never going to look like a European city. Like we are never going to have maybe in a century or two, we can have something like that, but it's, it's going to be our own version of an European city and just knowing that it won't be perfect, but if we can start to add some density into those suburban areas, because there's absolutely a desire for people to live outside of the city, but they just can't afford the housing. They can't afford a suburban house. So I think the suburbs would see a lot of success if they catered to the, 
those that middle income housing group. Well, that also brings up a an idea for me, which is like we have so much infrastructure that was built around the turn of the century to maybe the 30s. I'm thinking of Los Angeles's sewer system from 1900, for example. Those pieces of infrastructure have expiration dates, and we are sort of looking at them from a hundred years into the future, going, how are we gonna, how are they gonna pay for all that? Like there's bridges crumbling. There are, there's a need to rebuild a lot of that infrastructure. And what if we just replaced it with stuff that made sense instead of like, oh yeah, this thoroughfare, we need to repave. Why don't we just not repave it and make it something else? There's just a completely different attitude that needs to come in. And I think Portland, I think Portland does a really good uh, job of having that attitude. I don't know if it always implements it. One of my favorite uh, like apartments that I know of in Portland now is above an H Mart. Uh, it is an old dairy. So I think that the oh, yeah. Mart, yeah, the H Mart is inside the old dairy. And I dated a guy who had one of the apartments and you would go up and the apartment was so cool. There was like old air ducts running through it. It kind of reminds me of when you see like certain New York apartments that yeah. are very just like it was you could tell that it used to be a factory um very cool stuff we have a lot of old paper factories here that are just abandoned <laughs> just stuff like that yeah portland is has been much better than anywhere i visited and at least trying trying to work on this issue because most american cities still are not um like you mentioned la and that makes me think of I, i'm sure you've seen like in america the conservative states are the biggest recipients of welfare from democratic states mm. and that happens with cities and suburbs too you know there, a lot of the reason that our cities look so awful and are so awful it was because the tax resources from those cities are being drained into the suburbs to pay for this infrastructure that they can't afford um and so i think with climate change and just the rising cost of infrastructure and construction we're going to be forced like there's not going to be an option for people to maintain continue to live in the suburbs and that is not a fun conversation but simply put like we can't afford to lie down all that new infrastructure just for someone for eight people to live on a block well, yeah, like, it's not feasible while contra tenor was talking maybe like 10 minutes ago i was thinking yeah, we we've really built our cities around like non-human abilities where it's like, oh, they didn't build any sidewalks because they didn't think humans would be walking around. They just like, just oh, like humans are their cars. And we're all just like these cyborgs that are going around town. Like, how crazy is that to build your city around uh, an ability that a human doesn't even have? They actually have to purchase something in order to gain that ability. And we've decided to lay out our entire city so that everybody has to have a robot. Like, it's just a really strange. Well, my brother uh, once told me he took he took mushrooms once. And then he he told me about this trip that he had where he was walking around and he was just shocked. He had never noticed how much of the city landscape was dedicated to the automobile. And we obviously, we talk about this in terms of parking lots. Just think about it as a pedestrian, right? And this is our normal mode of being as humans is like to walk from place to place. And uh, 
if you imagine roads as kind of cliffs or, or you know, or, or sorry, like valleys that you literally can't go on or lava. And then if you look at a city landscape that way and you realize how much of even so-called walkable cities are dedicated to the, um, you know, making sure that automobiles can move around as efficiently as possible. And it's really until you live in a city that embraces things like closing down streets, like the Plateau neighborhood of Montreal is a great example where, you know, as much as like cars ostensibly are allowed to go, you know, up, up and down streets, uh, they close them on a whim all the time. Like Saint Laurent Boulevard would be closed. This or that thoroughfare would be closed. They have many street festivals. And it's only until you live in a city where you actually feel what it's like to be able to walk on the roadways freely and how much better you feel being able to do that, how much more social encounters you have just naturally because there's more people out on the street. And it just gives you a glimpse into, and maybe this is actually a good segue because I feel like one thing we haven't done yet is we haven't actually made the case for why a 15 or what 50 minute city or walkable city is better. You know what I mean? And I feel like I have really strong views on this subject, but I wonder Lincoln, if there's any, any probably we should, there's probably data on this. I'm sure that you're aware of. Well, it's funny because we haven't really connected it to the larger social issues that we're facing really well. We haven't connected it to issues like racial justice. We haven't connected it to issues like climate action, which all walkable cities are all of those things. And if we really want to get into the mainstream thought, that's how we connect. But for me, the main reason I want more walkable cities, more 15 minute cities, it's because I hate feeling lonely. Like I hate, I hate walking on the street and not like saying hi to people. Like I walk through, I live next to a really beautiful suburb, but I'll walk for an hour or two and just see no one. It's a ghost town. And it just like, if I just hate existing like that, like I dream of living in a city where maybe not every day, but I can walk out and there's someone sitting on a bench and I can share that bench with them and chat with them while we look at a dog park or something like little, there's little human moments that we don't even know that we're missing because we don't, because our infrastructure has been this way for so long. And so, I mean, a lot of the mental health crisis that we have is tied to the loneliness that we feel. And that loneliness, I think comes a lot from this way cities are built. Um, when you talk about that, I just think about racism. I think about othering. And I think this, I mean, it has always pervaded our culture. It really intensified around the 1960s when people said, hey, um, we want to be like actually equal citizens and treated as such. And then you had this intensification of othering and separating. And I feel like we have never come down from that attitude. You know, they closed all the public pools. They're like, hey, if white people and black people have to swim together, white people aren't even going to get to swim. Um, and I feel like we've had a lot of attitude of just like, how can we separate people more so that we can punish the people who want to be treated equally? And I think that there's, a conversation that we need to have because we know what NIMBYs are. They're very easy to spot, but there's a growing, there's a much more insidious type of NIMBY. It's the person who opposes the building of housing to protect trees, to protect the environment, oh. to protect farmland. Which I'm fascist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so there was a bill in the Oregon legislature that essentially would have made it, it would have allowed developers under certain 
to request certain variances from a city. Like I don't have to build parking lots. I don't have to do X, Y, or Z things that just make it essentially illegal to build affordable housing. And there was so much opposition and it was really tricky because when I first heard those arguments, it was, well, we don't want them cutting down farmland or mm -hmm. trees. We don't want them ruining our precious waterways. And you see the city Lake Oswego in Oregon, that was the city that most strongly opposed this bill. They used to be a sundown town. So what like, is it, can you explain what a sundown town is? It was a town, I'm, I'm not an expert on them, but it was a town where black people, it was illegal for them to be out at night, essentially mm -hmm. get out at sundown. Um, you were allowed to work in people's homes, but after that, the clan would come and find wow. you. Um, and like Lake Oswego used to be that. So when you see cities that are opposing the building of public transportation and housing, you have to call out the fact that that was their history. Like we're, we can't just let people make these arguments because 15 minute cities really are going to benefit everyone. But that fear and that intense othering is just, I, I wish we were past it. Well, the irony is that it's, uh, it often takes city density to counter that. Like I have my own theory, for example, like Toronto, for example, the downtown core notoriously votes for the leftist party in provincial and federal elections. They vote for the new democratic party, which is our like far left party or whatever. And, um, you know, there's a lot of theories about this, but to me, it's like, well, if you grow up in a, in a dense walkable city, um, where you're, you have to be out all the time, uh, you are forced to encounter people who are not in your community. Right. So not in your racial community, not in your cultural community, and especially in Toronto, which already is like one of the most ethnically diverse cities on earth. Um, you know, and so it's just, it's changes your entire perspective once. And it's not just people, right? It's also social issues. So you're much more attuned to poverty when you're living in a city that's walkable, where you're not just in your car and sort of entrapped in, in and sealed off from the, the rest of the world. And so once you actually experience living in that community, that those fears that you're talking about dissolve because you know what the reality is that, that, to live with other people in a dense urban core on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so... Yeah, it's kind of like a chicken and the egg thing, like until, you know, so I wonder if like there's another way to sell it. Like the other thing, too, is like I always think it's really funny, this model that people have when they live in, uh, you know, maybe a suburban house that they drive to. And they have to, they, they drive all the way, they commute for an hour to get to work, and then they go to the gym and then they come home. As opposed to like whenever I'm in Toronto, and especially when I'm in the downtown, I walk to get my coffee, I walk to a friend's house, I walk over to the park to meet another friend. I'm seeing people as I go, I'm not even thinking about it. And before the day is over, I've probably walked 12,000, 15,000 steps or There's something. There's no need for a gym. <laughs> exactly. So the idea that there's like a fitness center where I have to get, and it's not even just walking, like it could be like playing rec sports. I'm much more likely to play rec sports in a city where I literally can physically see people playing sports in the park across from me uh, and then leaving after and then going to a bar that's also within walking distance from, you know what I mean? It's like the, a lot of these things happen much more organically in these communities and they just make you feel better, you know? Right. Um, and I think maybe part of the opposition to the walkable city is like a fear that if you actually are forced to live you know, with people that you're used to dismissing out of hand the rest of the time, whether it's people in poverty or gay, lesbian, trans transsexual people or, or people of color. It's like if you don't have to actually live physically next to them and see them on a day to day basis, it's much easier to sort of dismiss them out of hand and or other other than more or less. Absolutely.
Yeah, it's I kind of went through a similar journey. I I've always been much more progressive. Um, but once I started walking, it radicalized me. Like it like I I can't even describe like once you get rid of the car bias and you experience the world and you just spend time with people and hear their stories, it really does just not even radicalize, it just humanizes things so much more. Because when you're in a car for an hour a day, you're cut off from your environment. You're cut off from experiencing the world in a natural way. And I would love to see a study how that affects psychology. But I mean, you see it in behaviors and consumerism and capitalism. It just builds on each other when you're removed from your environment. So it's it's like just baby steps. Like just get out of your car once and just go experience the world and in time. I've always had like a- it. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I've always had a theory around car driving and the way that it makes us just more angry at other people. Like you put two people in a car, they're both shielded by their cars and all they can see are taillights. And all of a sudden they're willing to dehumanize someone. It's a miserable experience because being in a car is dehumanizing. Yeah. It's a miserable experience. I will say yes. And um, take those two people out of those two cars, have them standing in line. Can you imagine someone just standing behind someone they don't know and haven't had any conversation with and saying, fuck you, right? Yeah. And to <laughs> the same like you thing. Someone a finger on the sidewalk. Right. And um, I mean, the same thing happens anytime you depersonalize and anonymize things. Um, people's sort of, I guess that's the id ego. They can just run wild on these impersonal objects, these screen names and YouTube comments or whatever it is. Um, and car driving is just another way to lose human connection and no wonder it's been so lonely. I feel the same way as you, Lincoln. Um, since I have not been driving, I've been completely ra radicalized towards all walkability. I don't even go to parts of the city that are not well covered by public transportation. My next thing is I need to get buses that take me to green space for where from where I am because they only go to urban areas and it's very hard for me to get out into nature. Yeah, this is, I'm really glad you brought up public transport because this is like been the thing in my, I wonder if this is the middle way. So we've been talking about like, how do you transform infrastructure and this, and it just, I just remind, remembered this issue that came up in Toronto politics. Um, so one of our older mayors, uh, David Lastman was this progressive mayor and he had this plan called Transit City that was going to uh, build affordable rapid transit um lines that would run sort of in the middle of, of main thoroughfares across the city, right? So not just in the downtown core, but sort of linking, effectively linking suburbs, um, you know, through efficient rapid transit to the downtown core. And it was talked about in the context of walkable cities in that these lines would help, um, you know, they would help sort of provide like a middle ground between literally building like a classic small town main street or the amenities that you'd normally associate with a walkable city. Instead, you would have, you would say, all right, well, we can't provide those necessarily. What we can do is at least move people en masse efficiently and affordably. Um, first of all, it's, it's way more cost effective than, you know, individual people and individual cars on a massive highway. It's much more environmentally friendly also, but I feel like it also addresses what we're talking about. When you're on public transit, you are again in a community of people for better or for worse. Sometimes in my experience, it would be quite worse. 
But again, it's the same thing. It's like, it's a much different experience than um, when it works well, than, you know, being stuck on in a in a car on a on a commercial highway to get to your job every single day back and forth. Right. So I wonder if that might be like the key as like sort of a backdoor, if we can't win on the zoning front, if we can't win on the reconstruction front or the, you know, uh, tra transformational front in terms of changing infrastructure they've already built in these exurbs and suburbs, maybe we can see public transport and funding public transport as like an a easier win. I don't know, Lincoln, if you thought about this at all. No. Lincoln, this is your and, cue to talk about streetcars. Well, <laughs> Which I, our Toronto is famous for, by the way. I get famous. really emotional when I talk about streetcars, <laughs> just like this, like, it makes me so sad because Portland had one of the most extensive streetcar networks in the country. So, but I want to talk about my experience riding a bus. On Monday, I rode the I took the bus home, um, and it is a community. Everyone was singing a song together on the bus, and it was so much fun. And I think that the way that we can kind of go about this conversation, we're not going to win over the people who like living in the suburbs. Like there are people who are just always going to live in the suburbs but there are a lot of people who hate driving like there are a lot of people who hate paying for gas paying for oil changes and tires and i think if we can speak to their an alternative for them you know making buses really nice and efficient and safe um giving them streetcars like those are the people that we need to win over because there's a huge everyone i know hates driving like if they didn't have to drive they would not and you had a question I can't remember that I was street, linking that back to. Cars, Streetcars versus um, cars versus buses. Was there another question? No, I was just talking. The question was mostly just like like public transport is sort of a backdoor to, uh, to, to yeah. sort of, yeah. Well, and I've had this idea in Portland. I've briefly mentioned it with you, Brown. Um, but there was, um, you know, Portland has these very isolated walkable communities there's kind of like little main streets that we have but they're inaccessible to one another and I think one way that in my city at least we could really improve public transportation is to put a streetcar line that connects all of them because right now it just takes you to downtown which is somewhere I don't really want to go um, and almost making it an experience like with the explicit purpose of making an experience maybe you have little streetcar attendants that hand out little drinks and candy <laughs> and you know like it's free on the weekends you can go bar hopping to different areas like I will sometimes I will sometimes ride the bus for fun I don't know if I'm weird I like being a passenger there is almost nothing in my life in which I just get to be a passive participant in something that's happening to me and I almost miss that from childhood of just like somebody taking me somewhere. And so sometimes I'll just get on a bus line and I'll ride it till the end. Then I'll get off and then I'll get back on. And the amount of money that that costs me is so negligible that it makes sense to do it just for the air conditioning sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, sorry, go. go ahead, Lincoln. Well, I was just going to say, once you live in a city with effective public transport, it literally changes your view of of where you are, like, and how accessible things are, right? Like Toronto for a long time had an extremely efficient public transportation system, the Toronto Transit Commission or the TTC. And, you know, you mentioned streetcars. Well, streetcars, like they're a beloved symbol of the city. You'll find them on our postcards, like people who leave the city, one of the things that they, you know, get emotional about when they see them in, in, uh, 
you know, uh, postcards or whatever is, is pictures of the sort of iconic red Toronto streetcars. So, but uh, interestingly, they were also subjects, they were one of the reasons why the famous crack smoking mayor, Rob Ford won is because he hated streetcars. He, he just associated them with slowing his SUV down from the, from Etobicoke on its way downtown. Right. So it, they were also a point of contention, which is very stupid as well. Um, uh, but it also is why Rob Ford trashed, I mentioned David Miller before, trashed his plan for these these uh, rapid transit overland systems because he just called them streetcars, which they weren't actually. Um, so, but again, all this is to say is like now having moved, now I, move, I live in, in the Halifax Regional Municipality and we have a transit system, but it's it's so underfunded uh, that it it is literally faster. It's not a joke to say that it's probably faster for me to walk to downtown Halifax and it is to wait for a bus to get there. I would get there faster. And that's the thing, like you can't half-ass your investment in public right. transit. Yeah. Right. Because it just starts that downward spiral and the negative association, which I mean, Correct. there are a lot of bus lines I probably wouldn't want to get on um, in most cities because it's just not a great experience. I want to speak to the listener, yeah. if that's all right. Do you remember in at the beginning of the pandemic when there was no air pollution there the this your city was quiet how like don't you just want that back wasn't that yeah. so nice like no air pollution there were animals wildlife coming back into the cities that is what public transportation mm -hmm. can do it will slow your life down just enough you can respond to emails on the bus or the train but you're not going to have to spend 30 minutes in traffic in the morning if we have a well-funded public transportation like public transportation is one of our greatest underutilized resources it can be the single most effective way to reconnect communities and slow us down you know, we're just way too busy yeah yeah i agree like, that's, <laughs> that's good like, yeah support public yeah. transportation yeah but it's it's interesting earlier you mentioned uh how they can also be used as a club to to sort of uh because it's very, it's very easy once you have an effective, uh, you know, system of public transportation in place. Once you start to defund it, which is what's happened in Toronto since you know the, the latest mayor's been there, it's super noticeable. And then you're exact, you're exactly correct in that it, it completely skews people's perception of. And the interesting thing is that uh, people in Toronto hate the TCC. They're like, it's slow. It does, you know, it's not reliable. Um, but then Europeans will come to Toronto and rave about how much how good the public transport system is there, um, which is hilarious. And, and Torontonians are always shocked to hear it because, again, I think once you're on the system and you're used to it working at a certain level and it's sort of death by a thousand cuts over time, uh, you will turn against it very, very quickly. And it, of course, that plays into the hands of certain politicians, the same politicians who love urban sprawl and and you know for, for whom are glad to embrace the conspiracy theory about 15 minute cities maybe I mean, we like, should talk I, about, uh, go ahead i'm like imagine if that was your water like if we yeah. accepted running water like that or electricity yeah. like that public transportation is that important to a city um what was your question i don't remember i think i was just gonna say um uh, what was I going to say? I don't remember. It's fine. I have two things <laughs> to say about uh, sort of public transport. The first is it brings up this idea of um, individuality for me, where it's like, 
There's another thing they were talking about on the the airplane podcast yesterday. Apparently, I really liked that podcast. Um, it was that people need to be able to buy um, sort of like Cadillac services. They need to be able to buy expensive things that make them better than other people. There's a self-esteem um, virtue signal, not virtue signaling, but like class signaling thing. Um, I am better than you. I have a better car than you. Um, and when you use public transportation, it it makes you the same as everybody else. Everybody rides next to each other on this same thing to this destination. You're all together. And there's a, a communication about community versus individuality there. And I think that, uh, like, I, I watch the car infrastructure and I just go, how did they get people to buy into this? Their car payment is $700 a month. Uh, I I did a... Half of that for insurance. Yeah, I did a TikTok video on the median um, car payment right now is $600 a month. Half of the people are paying $600 a month for their car payment. Um, and then tires and maintenance and it's a terrible experience to have. Like what about this is redeeming? I feel like if we came back and looked at this and we're like, oh, do we want to make this decision as a society? I feel like most people would be against it. Isn't that so funny? Um, but because we don't know what it's like to actually experience it firsthand, we always choose the alternative. And I think people do that with community living too. Whenever I talk to people, oh yeah, I live in a community house and I have six people that live in my house and we make dinner together and we have dinner together every night as a family. They're like, how do you deal with all those people? Like, don't you fight with them? Don't you hate it? Isn't it loud? And I'm like, most of the time it's fine. And if I need somebody to help me with something, there's always somebody to help me. Um, and so my experience is it's much better. And I have a feeling that's what people would feel about closer, living closer to people and taking public transportation. Oh, absolutely. I, it's just like the voting against your best interests type of thing. Like the thing that's most comfortable and the thing, you know, the devil, you know, is better than the one you don't. Um, but I mean, isn't it, I mean, I feel like this is an American thing. Like, um, you know, the idea of the automobile representing personal freedom, right? And it's like, it's the idea that uh, the car gives you access, you know, if you if you want to go downtown, you can, but if also if you wanted to go four hours out into the country, you have the freedom to do so and nobody can tell you not to, right? And I remember what I was going to bring up before is I wonder if it was worth talking about the motivations behind the anti-15 minute, uh, minute city conspiracy theory. And I and I think I think this is what's what's at the heart of it, right? It's not that people are necessarily opposed to the idea that I could walk to my kid's school, I could walk to the grocery store. I think, and this, and you mentioned the Oxford congestion pricing or whatever in that experiment. Um, and I think this is what people are, you know, it's like it ties in with everything that's. It's like this weird conspiracy theory about like Davos and like you will own nothing yeah, and be happy, which is yeah, it's yeah. Totally, And so the that. idea is like, you're going to take my car away. And if you're not going to take my car away, then you're going to take my freedom to drive wherever I want away. And that's what people are scared of. Right. And so like all the other concerns, I feel like they probably understand a little bit. Like, I honestly think nobody looks at 
the the sort of like I said, the hybrid highway main street with the Wendy's and the McDonald's. Nobody looks at that and thinks that's aesthetically beautiful. But I, on the other hand, I think when they they're asked about would you want to live in a walkable city, they're like, no, because I need my car. You know what I mean? It's like I need my washroom, I need my my refrigerator, I need my car. And so part of me understands that a bit. And I wonder like how do we work with that? Because ideally, you don't want to take you know, you don't want to take someone's car away. You don't want to say you can't drive anywhere. It's just like, maybe you should start to think about the fact that you are not in isolation. You don't live in isolation. It's not just you and the road, right? It's like, if you combine a, a huge number of cars together in a dense urban city, you create not just traffic, but a huge amount of pollution and also waste a lot of time. So this is actually, I'm really happy you asked this question because there is I, I see lots of I see plenty of videos on TikToks about like the smart city conspiracy theories like there's that one that's built into like a huge long line um, and I think we need to get actually have less technology in our cities and I think that's something we can speak to as well um, you know there's a phenomenon that happens that no matter how harmful a technology is it's always going to be adopted because its convenience can't be outweighed you know, like look at our phones I, I think everyone would agree that phone cell phones are harmful to society, but they're so convenient, we can't imagine life without them. And an example of removing tech in a city that would make it safer is a stoplight, a traffic light. When you are forced to stop, you know, the traffic light acts as outsourcing safety hmm. to technology. So if we were to retake the traffic light, and it was just a four-way stop, instead of waiting for a green light to tell you it was safe to go you had to rely on the other hmm. people near you it's kind of returning to community your safety then depends on everyone else at that mm -hmm. intersection and i think with the 15 minutes conspiracy theories and like the world economic forum uh, we just have to all offer an alternative and for me that's a tech-free city you know the cam best cameras are human eyes and like you had mentioned earlier, you felt much safer in a denser area where people were watching and keeping an eye on you. you know, yeah, walkable cities are all low tech. It's all yeah. low tech. Like it's like that's, that's what we want and speak directly to that. Like you don't need a security camera because there's like three people there who are, you know, we'll see what happens to you. Or, you know, like I said, like you don't have to go to a gym because you're getting exercise just walking around. Right. Um, it's interesting you mentioned getting rid of traffic lights because in where I am now in Halifax, they've gone all in on roundabouts, right? So this oh, is their I efficient, tra yeah. So the efficient traffic solution is just to like, well, we, we agree, we don't need a traffic light. And actually that slows down traffic anyway. So they've created a huge number of urban roundabouts and, you know, they're a pain to get used to. Um, uh, and again, I'm speaking as a non-driver, but just listening to my wife, <laughs> these things sometimes. But, but once you get used to them, you know, you understand immediately why they're a, a better solution to that. So I heartily agree. And I think that's probably why, like in Toronto, there was a huge pushback when Google wanted to make, they wanted to sort of cordon off this portion of the downtown as like a Google tech city. And there was a huge amount of opposition to that, in part because of what you're talking about, because um, there's a sense that we don't, we don't, cities are fine. We don't need to create new tech utopias. This is not, as you say, this is not Davos a Davos conspiracy theory. It's just like um, cities are ancient things. They've been around for a long time and they, they work perfectly well. So we don't need to like, you know, we don't need to add yeah, anything like, new. I, I think it's clear at this point, especially after the pandemic, that 
big technology companies have not improved people's lives to the extent at which they promised. If anything, I think we're all lonelier and more stressed out because of it. And we're um, all independent contractors now. Yeah, we're all we all have gig jobs. Um, yeah. Well, even think of something like Google Maps, right? Like before you, you know, you might go down to a downtown strip and you would use your eyes and ears to sort of figure out where you might want to go to eat, right? right. So you would, you know, the, all the locals are at this restaurant. So that's usually a good algorithm, you know, handy, handy rubric to decide if I'm going to eat there or whatever. Uh, or maybe you, you, you decide you're going to try something new on a whim. Whereas like with Google Maps, you can ahead of time, you pick the exact specific spot that you want to go to because it's been highly rated by a number of strangers. And you will take one specific direct fast route to get there and then come immediately home. You know what I it's, mean? It's, it's that loneliness I was talking about. Yeah. Like that's lonely. You can't just wander through your city and find something, stumble upon, across something or, oh, it's right next to that beautiful water fountain in the park. That's where you'll find yeah. it. Um, Lincoln, do you know about these like weird like um, walking uh, excursions that people go on where they like the, the idea is you leave your house and you follow a set of rules that you set out ahead of time uh, just, i've never heard of that i can't remember what it's called i think it's like something it probably started in france or something but uh the idea is like you have one rule in mind so so maybe it's like you're oh, only make left turns or you will only um you know you will i don't, can't remember where the other ones are but basically you just it's just an idea to give you like a set parameter but you're essentially yeah. wandering around with no object you know which oh, i think that sounds really like fun. super fun and uh yeah and it is fun like um honestly when i came out here you know i didn't i'd never been to like i've been to dartmouth a few times i didn't know this place but i i, I you know for me it was like i would go, like, go on tiktok live and i would just That's... walk around i'd walk around town on live and i had no object i didn't know where i was going i'd like turn left turn right didn't know and i found some really cool stuff like stuff that you would never stumble upon yeah exactly and and to me like you know we're all on tiktok i think one of the cool things is you know most lives are terrible they're like they're like factories to get people to click but there used to be these incredible lives of people like i'm in downtown tokyo i'm just wandering around walk with me or i'm in you know there was one i saw where was a person walking in uh, lagos nigeria and i was like this is amazing like i'm literally seeing the streets of lagos oh, in real time that's on, how on the i internet. felt about yours that you would do in Dartmouth and it was wintry out I remember I saw snow I'm like oh my gosh it's so pretty there and that's when we first started kind of talking and you'd be like hi Brown yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> we talked about the tech but the like fears of your cars being taken away homes in walkable cities still yeah. have garages like nobody like you can keep your car like in my mind if you want to have a car like if it truly provides that much value to you keep it but you just don't have to have two or three like most families in europe have one car that they share among themselves um like it's still whenever there's it's still very much a thing that people whenever have. it seems like whenever there's like a universally good idea up for grabs the arguments against it are always these shitty slippery slope arguments like hey Let's have yeah. gay marriage be legal. They'd be like, nope, they're gonna people are gonna have sex with goats. Like that's always <laughs> like yeah, just, yeah, just like it's slippery slope. Um, so whenever you hear a slippery slope, I feel like whatever that idea is is probably a good idea. Um well the, as if the government wants to take your car away. I mean, like gas tax and that, like it's a huge industry. Yeah, yeah they exactly. rely on it. like it's like that's always what I find funniest is like 
what what end would that serve you know what i mean like uh, it's really funny well honestly coke the coke brothers have been known to you know fund these kind of like fake controversies all the time and i i honestly believe that this was just like a I don't know. I can't prove it, but I feel like the auto and gas industry like blew up this whole 15 minute city conspiracy way more than it needed to be just to like farm this rage in people yeah. about it. Well, it's like, funny. It's funny. You mentioned like, that because uh, one of the big uh, propagators of this the theory is, is, a, is a Canadian guy named Chris Saka and uh, uh, Chris, Saka, I can't remember. It's Chris guy, Chris guy, Chris Saka is a tech guy, Chris guy. And um his dad is a, is a developer and uh, specifically uh, like suburban development and has a stake in. So the big battle in Ontario right now, where, where Toronto is, the province where Toronto is, is uh, the premier, the sort of governor of the province of Ontario, uh, Doug Ford, who's Rob Ford's brother. <laughs> this is like terrible dynasty. Anyway, he oh, he, is, um, he pushed, he passed through very controversial legislation to allow development on this area around the city of Toronto called the Greenbelt. And the green belt has been a beloved green space for a long, long time. And this is not an example of what you were talking about earlier with like eco-fascism. This is like, definitely there is absolutely no need. There's so much, yeah, right. there there's so much sprawl it. in the greater Toronto area that like they do absolutely do not need to go in the green belt. But my, my theory is that the 15 minute city, anti 15 minute city conspiracy theories are being driven at least in Canada in part by people who, directly benefit from uh, urban sprawl because you know uh, <laughs> they they can't foresee any other kind of, of of urban development you know it's really easy to see like oh facebook mark zuckerberg makes more money when i'm on facebook but i i don't think a lot of people realize the longer you drive your car the more money you make big oil executives like it, it's the yeah. same model the longer you have to drive the bigger the road the more cars like there's just more money and like it's just a simple economic incentive for them to maintain that and that's where we have to take away i think their power in that being able to yeah. lobby so far we have been speaking i think towards utopia and in utopian ways and i just want to uh invite a little bit of dystopia into the conversation, which I think is often not covered well. Um, there's this phenomenon with trying to create community and trying to create togetherness with other human beings. And it is that the smaller the group of people you have and the more able you are to sort of um, choose the people that you are being in community with the more sort of like healthy and intentional your community can be so people talk to me about well how did you create an intentional community I'm like well we had an application process and we interviewed the people and we really wanted to find people who wanted community were looking for it and had some emotional health and communication skills um you're not gonna have that on a citywide basis. In fact, we have more mental health struggles, more um, like difficulty of all kinds, because in essence, people who can't produce for capitalism have been abandoned by the system. We don't have places for people to go. People are struggling. They are not doing well. 
And so my question is, as you gain a larger and larger amount of people to be in your community, um, how do you solve the problem of like, not everybody is gonna abide by <laughs> these um, ideal ways of interacting with community. And like, that's why we end up having to depersonalize things and um, rely on technology and rely on laws. It is for the least common denominator. That's why we have to have like a speed limit is because most people um, can drive safely on most roads, but for the least common denominator, the person who's gonna decide to drive a hundred miles an hour down a 30, um, how do we enforce that as our group of people gets larger and larger and still keep people safe? <laughs> I just think we do. You know what I mean? I think there's no there's no good trade off there. But your your uh, that observation got me thinking about one thing we haven't really touched on that's important to talk about is equity, right? Um, and it's a word that's thrown around a lot. But um, to me, it's like all of those things that you talked about. So people not having enough money to get by and feeling sort of isolated by capitalism, um, but also like crime and mental health issues are all related to um economic uh inequity right um and access to resources and this is the big issue i have sometimes with urban planners and, and sort of because in toronto they're all very optimistic and happy and like toronto's a great city we need to make it great again and blah 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 and uh i don't think they understand that like part of the the way that toronto works is like um it's not just that people who live in the suburbs do it by choice or because they prefer to live there often it's just more affordable because what the suburbs are in Toronto, it's right. not just individual single family units. It's sometimes these enormously tall um, uh, apartment buildings uh, that are completely cut off from any amenities because those are the most affordable units to live in the entire city and they're cut off. And so anytime I feel like they listen to some downtown or talk about, oh, downtown's great. We all live here. It's great. And not talking about the fact that the people who live in the downtown core are among the richest people in the entire country um, just by asset growth alone in the houses that they own. Um, I think that's something that leftists really need to talk about because it's one thing to create walkable cities and it's another thing to ensure that those cities are equitable and it's not well, just like the rich who get to enjoy them, right? Well, a lot of our sort of walkable utopias, I believe that they don't exist without these externalities of capitalism. And the externalities are the unhoused population, right? We can't have our utopia unless it's built on the shoulders of the people who didn't win in capitalism. And there is such a brutal attitude towards that is such a merit-based attitude of like, well, they didn't work hard. They deserve to be like that, right? And it is so hard for me to walk by those people because I come from that, like I come from addiction, I come from narrowly having escaped that and I know how um, unfair it is and how much humanity those people have. And um, it is so brutal to have that attitude. I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> so specifically when you're talking, I, I really appreciate you bringing me out of the clouds because I, I love, to be a little bit maybe too utopian um there's a book that i just started reading by veronica davis inclusive transportation and in that she kind of tackles these questions of equity 
And it reminds me of a story. It was the aluminum company, Alcoa. They had kind of, I'm, I'm sure you both have probably heard this story. Um, they were going through this huge, they, the company was on the brink of failure. This new CEO comes in and says, our one goal is safety. And through achieving that, everything else was improved. And so in this book, she argues that, of course, a city cannot give everyone what they want or need. Like that is just, it's too utopian. But what we can do is build around children. Like we can make sure that kids are able to walk to school safely, that they have, that they can play in streets safely and they have access to tons of parks and after school resources. And that in the process of catering a city towards children, our lives are going to be better because that infrastructure exists for us as well. And so I think if we want to be as effective as possible, we can just steal the um, the fascists argument and uh, advocate for children um, and make cities better for kids because in the long term that will create much more equitable outcomes uh, in cities and there was one other point that I the trouble I think with building around children is like for someone like me who is not going to have children I'm kind of ambivalent to the idea like I think children um, should like be provided for but because I don't have kids I feel like oh that doesn't involve me I'll let the parents make that decision and so I'm not fundamentally interested in that argument because it doesn't really involve me so it feels like something that every it has to be something that everybody has well well and I think that's well sorry, I was just gonna go say ahead. I mean I think maybe it's just framing what we when we think of walkable cities well is the city truly walkable if you know uh if there's people living, you know, unhoused people um, living in tent communities everywhere, is it truly walkable if, you know, the, the crime rate's extremely high? Um, no. And so I think, you know, I think when we, because this is such an urban planner dominated conversation, I think it's important to bring in voices of like, you know, I think public housing should be deeply tied to this discussion, or at least affordable, deliberately affordable housing should be tied to this discussion. And it's interesting you mentioned like building cities for children and it reminds me like this the there's the school that i went to in downtown toronto clinton street school uh was like this amazing uh community of like diversity for 40 years and then uh the gentrification of the downtown changed it so the kids were all still safe but it was safe because the downtown core essentially became like a a, a rich person's playland and uh the, the the homeless populations were forced to the edges of the city or at least the people people living in, in poverty. So I still think like, I, th I think maybe what we need to do when we talk about walkable cities is talk about this question of affordability and poverty. And, you know, um, because again, like, is a city truly walkable if, if it's inequitable? And I would say, I would argue the answer is no. I agree. And I, I think that like, I dream all these things about cities and making them better for everyone, um, it won't work under our current system. Like it, it, it won't. And we, 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 we all know that um, there are too many. We're ending up at the same place that I always end up when I talk about um, urban planning, transportation, affordable housing is like, for this to work, people can't be desperate. We can't have anybody that doesn't have their needs met in our society. Right. So I got to solve that first. And I don't know how to do that. Well, I think one one idea 
that I think would work well is the first step we could take is decommodifying de housing. Um, that's what that's something you know, that Uncouver and I talk about a lot. Like we'll just be text um texting back and forth on TikTok, just like um how like ownership is a problem. And we're like, damn, that's we're so far away from getting rid of that. <laughs> no, yeah, it, private prop like the like it the unfortunate I'm gonna give homeowners the most generous <laughs> assumption because they don't have anything else to fall yeah. on. Like they they have to hold on to their home because that is their nest egg. And that attitude alone. And I don't blame yeah. them for doing that because that is fair. I would probably do the same in the current system we live in, but it creates so many problems. So I think one way that we can fight that is to force companies to give ownership of companies' stocks to employees, a much more employee-owned perspective rather than stocks. Because if you look at kind of the, the wealthiest people in society, they aren't really invested in their home. Like it's just a place they live. They're, they have much more of their investments in businesses, the places that they work. And I think one way that we can counteract a lot of the housing crisis is just to have people literally bought into their company. They own a stake of it just because they work at it or. Well, I see that homeownership um, piece is like another way that they swindled people. It's another thing that I stand back and look at. I'm like, how did they get people to buy this? Right. And it is so like, the, it's this big commodity. You'll spend your entire life paying for it by the time it's paid off. Um, you know, you're going to have all of your assets sunk in one asset class. Like it is not a, it's not a good idea financially, but it's like they got everybody to buy into this idea of home ownership. And now we are so stuck in this. Um, oh, it's my nest egg. Oh, it's my retirement. Um, I had something else to say. I completely forgot. Well, this is, this is like Uncouver and I will tell you like Canada, this is the biggest issue because once like pensions evaporated and we had this thing called the RSP, which is kind of like your Roth IRA or whatever. And they, that the return on that dwindled as like employment stability dwindled. And so people are like, Hey, there's real estate, which in Canada just grows and grows and grows. Let's go all in on this. Like interest rates will be low forever. And now we're at this huge turning point in this country because now we're realizing, oh, oh shit, like the party's over. These interest rates are going up. A lot of people are on variable mortgages. And it's not just about losing their homes. It's their entire equity, their, their assets, their stake in everything is in their homes now. So you talk about commodification of housing. Like the government basically more or less has relied on it to replace pensions and RSPs as like a retirement plan. And it's like going to be an enormous disaster in this country. And I feel like only a few people are talking about it. But I just wanted to touch on one thing that Lincoln said that I think is important. My issue, you know, the thing I always feel like we end up in these conversations, it's not just about walkable cities, it's about climate change, it's about racial inequity, it's about economic inequity, is electoral politics is not going to do the trick, unfortunately. And so one thing that I really like right. that you mentioned was worker-owned companies. And I feel like one of the one of the things that we haven't talked about, maybe it's too much time, is, is, is co the co-op movement, right? And I feel like the co-op movement feels like very yeah. granola. It feels like, you know, uh, Birkenstocks, sandals. Like we, we feel like it's an old 70s thing, but I really feel like I wish more people were talking about it as a way to create energy into something that people can actually do without necessarily, you know, putting all their chips in the electoral politics basket because it just will burn you every single time. That's what I was going to say. I'm just gonna get that, That's the other thing I was going to say is like, oh, 
you can't own the company that you work for, but own this house. It feels like the same thing. I can't, I'm paraphrasing it, but it was, I read it somewhere online that home ownership was really pushed in the 40s, 50s, and 60s as a way to counteract a lot of the socialist movements from the 20s and 30s, because if everyone believed they were a capitalist, they had a stake in it. And it, to me, it feels very much like it was a distraction method, um, because if you own a home, you're not a capitalist. Like you, you're, you're bought into the system in all the wrong ways. And when we talk about the economic in inequity that's happening, it happens in the company you work in. It happens when the CEO makes four or five hundred times the amount you do. And I think the best long-term way is that kind of co-op model. Um, kind of employee owned to kind of balance the powers again to me it makes so much sense because if if uh, it all starts with like company decisions and it's not just yeah it's like the ceo getting paid a lot of money but it's also the companies deciding uh to follow the sort of neoliberal playbook and it's like hey maybe we don't need to have these employees like employed with us for a lifetime maybe we can like have downsizing as a regular thing to like show something off to the the stakeholders. And once that started, it meant that you were no longer tied to an employer who who was going to fund your pension. And then where people companies were like, well, then why are we paying for pensions? So those went out the window. And then the government sort of came in with these matching programs for these like, you know, investment vehicles and and those had various degrees of success. But you know, as prices increased and wages didn't increase with them, then people could put less and less because this is such a neoliberal idea, like you should be responsible for your own retirement. So we'll create an investment vehicle for you to do it. But of course, like if you can't afford your bills, the last thing you're going to be able to do is to top up your, your retirement fund. Right. Um, and so like the one thing, the one thing that you could do that you knew to some degree would accrue value over time without you having to put actual physical money into it was owning a home. You own this asset that's growing without you doing anything more or less. And, and then when that goes, well, then like, you know, the whole house of cards tumbles, What's you know. Yeah, I really view walkable cities like you'd mentioned, like, is this almost not, I, there's not a silver bullet, but I view it as a silver bullet, kind of the easiest way to accomplish everything on the checklist that's wrong. You know, it's climate action, it's just racial justice action, it's equity, like it, it, it crosses off all the boxes imperfectly but it addresses them because it's much more about it's not about walking to get coffee it's what walking to coffee represents it's a move away from these neoliberal policies that have been trenched us so deeply in the shit that we're in um <laughs> it's a way to counteract that That's yeah why I, I agree that. again for all the reasons I, I mentioned earlier about like it just forces you to be in a community and see other people and to like acknowledge the reality, the physical reality of the world that you're in, as opposed to being like, you know, uh, cut off. Yeah. I think so many of these conversations are, how do we make things human centered again? And inevitably we're going to be talking about technology and then people are going to say, well, don't take my technology away. I don't want the government to be in control of me. And I don't know, part of the the neoliberal, like, almost tech bro way of seeing things. I don't remember what book this was in. And it just really transformed the way that I see that attitude, 
was there's a very um, everybody wins mentality. They look for a lot of everybody wins scenarios. So one example of that is like, oh, people aren't able to save money because they don't earn enough money. Okay, we're going to make an app that rounds up every purchase that you make. So if it's like 58 cents, it's like, you know, whatever that cent amount is, we're going to throw it into a bank account for you. We made an app for this. We got tech, you know, we got um, angel investors to come in. What do they call that? Um, like private equity funding to create our app and like everybody wins, right? Not solving any of the problems. Let's just stack more technology onto this that's not actually solving anybody's problem. Um, eventually, we're going to have to go away from like that mindset for everything. And I think you're absolutely right, Lincoln. Like it has to do with pulling technology away. Like how do we make these things um, just built into what we're doing day to day? When I stopped um, driving, it solved me needing more exercise. It solved me feeling lonely. It solved me needing more money. So having to spend uh, a lot of my money on like my vehicle situation, like it solved so many problems that I would have had to solve independently. Um, the other thing that I sort of hate about the way that we've constructed everything is um, really having to intentionally plan every part of my life. One of that pieces is friendship and community. I never want to have to schedule friendship again. It's why I don't have as many friends as I want to. Um, and the friends that I want to hang out with, like I just want them to live near me. I want to walk outside and they are there near me. Um, yeah, I mean, that was the miracle of Toronto. I could not tell you how many times just doing basic things, going to the grocery store, going downtown to get like a burrito or something. And I would bump into three or four of my friends. And sometimes I would go just, we'd just go to the park and hang out. You know what I mean? And this is interesting. You mentioned tech in this context and uh, at the risk of sounding very pretentious, <laughs> I feel like that that's the allure of those apps. And that's the allure of cars. It's like the simulacra or si simulation of, or the illusion of, of agency. So with an app, you're like, I have freedom. I can order a cab anytime I want. I can get like, food delivered to my house, I have more agency in my life, but it's just kind of an illusion because you're actually paying more for that privilege. Same with cars, right? Like I have the, you know, this feeling of freedom, I can go anywhere I want, but it's not really free because you're paying this like, huge exorbitant cost. And then at the same time, you're actually further isolating yourself. So the cost of that freedom is like less community and less feeling at home, you know? So yeah, I think it's like, we have to like, it's almost like we have to shake ourselves out of this illusion that these things have created for us, you know, marketed to us. Here's your sound bite. <laughs> Walkable. Do it. <laughs> this is good. We need it. Walkable cities are a redefinition of freedom. Fundamentally, that's what they are. It's examining all the ways that we have thought we were free and redefining that into a more human-centered mm -hmm. way. Because I think a lot of us would agree now that all the tech bros are just sociopaths that have ruined society in a lot of ways. Um, and reimagining how technology can make us free and not just on my phone all day, because technology is powerful, but it's been used in exploitative ways. And I don't know, I, I deeply want to live in this world. I, I like in my bones, I want to live in this world. I, I don't know. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Brian. I don't know if you saw that TikTok video that was going around maybe two weeks ago, but it was like this guy who's like millennials are, I don't think we give e each other enough credit for living in the 
like amount of addictions that we have near us. Just like you are constantly having to like not engage in some incredibly addicting behavior that's being offered to you. And just the amount of like moderation that we constantly have to practice is just like crazy. That's what that reminded me of. I was just going to say, this reminds me of, uh, I can't remember where I read this, but that people think that the Amish are Luddites, right? That they reject modern technology, but that's actually not correct. Hmm. In fact, the, the Amish model is very interesting in that, uh, they will adopt new technologies, but they have a very rigid social process to gauge whether or not a technology is worth it to adopt within the community. So I can't remember how they do it, but there's something where they will say, you know, they'll try it for a month or six months or something. And after that, they'll come together and they'll say, is this worth, is this, is, is the trade-offs of these new, so it's very deliberate. It's not just like new thing, good thing, which is very much how tech, like tech Valley, you know, Silicon Valley operates. It's like, it's new, it's it's faster. It must be better like with JetGBT, but they actually have a very deliberate process to understand, is this truly worth the trade-offs for us to adapt as a technology? Hmm. And I, I think we, we can't have this conversation around technology in cities and walkable cities without talking about AI. Um, like MTA in New York City is now using AI in their cameras to um, track fare avoidance. And what they're doing, that AI is doing, is using facial recognition to charge people's bank accounts for when they jump the turn. Yeah, like it, it's already here. We are like, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that, but like, that's terrifying to me. Yeah, yeah and I mean, that's person. that's scarier than any sort of conspiracy about your car getting taken away is like the, the someone scanning your yeah. face when you're just out on the street. You know, sorry, Brown, I talked over you. That's okay. There are certain technologies that we fully embrace and bring into our lives and realize are harmful. And then there are other technologies that we realize on their face are harmful. And yet they are still used just a little bit more in the shadows, a little bit more under the radar. And so... Then the question is, can we really avoid having these technology these technologies used anyway? Um, I don't know about you, but I constantly see videos that are saying, you think that your phone is listening to you, but actually it's just using a really like sophisticated algorithm to figure out. And I will never believe it. Like I have had so many instances where I say something and then I see an ad for it and I'm like, there's no way it's not listening. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, the number of times like a security company has been caught, like just randomly listening to people's, you know, what's going on in people's bedrooms through their, you know, through their Alexa. Yeah, exactly. So, it, you know, this idea that like, to me, it's I hate it when people dismiss it out of hand. It's like, it's like, nah, it's probably not that crazy. You know what I mean? We know that they're more than just what what I got from this conversation is that walkable cities are yeah. much more than just nice buses and pretty sidewalks. Like it, it's, it's a healing solution. Maybe what we need is like a program. Cause again, I'm such an evangelist for walkable cities because I lived in both and I vividly know the difference between the two things. And I know that the benefits are not just like, it's not just about exercise. It's not just about convenience. It's not just about community. It's like, it literally, you feel more human. You know, you feel like, oh, this is what it's like to be in a, in a community, right? Like this is, like you could even be a loner and still like walk around town and, and feel something akin to like connecting with your fellow person. Um, and so I'm, maybe if like we could create like a program by which people could just like experience this for like a month or something, you know, like the 
the, I don't know the what do they call it the the Peace Corps or something <laughs> like urban walkability uh, because it's literally it's like once you live it it's like I cannot imagine saying no you know what I mean like I can I can see hating cities I can see not liking the noise but I cannot see not understanding the convenience of like the better aspects of a walkable city. I do want to say we have to be careful of the in the caveman days argument. That argument pervades a lot of mm -hmm. health uh, conversations. It ha um, You hear it in um, mental health. You hear it in obesity talks. And it seems to lead a lot of the time to an argument of purity for whatever reason oh in the in the caveman days we were doing so much better and we just need to return to the natural world that argument has existed as long as the argument of the kids these days are so whatever whatever they've been saying it since the 1400s and since the 1400s as well we've been saying oh we need to return to the better times i think that whatever we create with walkable cities is going to be something that's fundamentally new and different. And we just have to be really careful of saying, hey, we live in this really constructed environment that is not natural to the human being. And that's what is causing all of our ills. Um, I would remind everybody that humans are incredibly adaptable, have lived in many different terrains. You have people living in the far north and they just eat seal blubber all year and then they emerge and like they're healthy. Um, so I think we're incredibly adaptable and I think that we can have some technology and some naturalism. I appreciate that call out. That's definitely something I need to be mindful of when I'm communicating. Um, the last thing I'll say about walkable cities is like we see the social fabric breaking down, at least in America. Like t the tensions are just high, especially across political lines. And I really view walkable cities as a way to heal the social fabric. You know, the social fabric happens on the block you live. And creating a better block goes a long way to heal that social fabric. And that's kind of why I want to help have people like each other a little. Well, bit. I mean, I think, I think the, I mean, I said this in a TikTok a while ago. I think what people forget is like, it's not, they think of walkable cities, they think of Manhattan or whatever, or, or I don't know, San Francisco, but it's, it's like, it's actually small town USA, right? It's like, you have a main street, you have your, your hardware store, you have your, your grocery store. It's like, that was kind of like a walkable city. You know, people weren't like necessarily driving in for miles around. They would just walk down two blocks to get what they needed and then walk back. Right. So I think that that this this idea that it is like a um, you know bloated democratic city versus you know Republican you know uh, rural area is just not accurate because a lot of the best aspects of walkable cities you see in things like what happens when a town a small town is hit by a tornado in the Midwest you know people come together there's like um, you know community caring going on there's like community resources going on that that happen because. These communities are not isolated. They're, they know each other. They see each other on a daily basis, right? So I think that's not to sound, again, I know we're, we're trying not to sound utopian here, but I do feel like that is an interesting area that crosses, you know, crosses the political divide a little bit. What'd you say, Lincoln? I said, I think we need to be a little utopian to solve a lot of these problems. I, I think it's going to take some imagination. We certainly have 
more utopias or we have more dystopias in our zeitgeist than we do utopias so <laughs> we need to create more utopias i believe in that um thank you to sirs uh both very insightful people i'm really glad to know you and um thank you for coming on the podcast today lincoln thank you both very much it was very nice to meet you and see you again brown yeah i hope we have you back this was great this is our longest one ever so yeah something went right I yeah love, <laughs> i love talking to you both um if you want to support this podcast, we have a Patreon page that is linked in the show notes. We will have bonus episodes up. I think our next one that we're going to record is definitely going to be a bonus episode. If you would like to suggest a bonus episode, um, I am going to get our website up this week and you'll be able to email us. So um, thank you all for being on and we'll see you soon. <laughs>